You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we'll be talking about energy, the world's appetite for energy and the sources that feed it, from oil and gas to wind and solar, from hydroelectric to hydrogen. It's a big topic. The numbers involved are, of course, enormous, and so are the implications, not only for economics and industry structure, but also for carbon emissions and climate. To talk through the facts and forecasts, I caught up in Amsterdam with McKinsey's senior partners, Namit Sharma and Krista Trigestad. So, uh, Namit and Krista, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Very happy to be here, Simon. Thanks a lot for the invitation. So, we're going to be talking about global energy demand at the highest level, so where it goes from here. In my sort of not very educated layperson's way, if you were to ask me to guess, I would say energy demand probably tracks global GDP, plus or minus. Is that right? Historically, that has been a very correct observation. So if you look at even the last 100 years, uh, we've seen energy demand grow around 2 to 3% per year, very much aligned with uh, global economic growth. Forward, though, we actually see a delinking or decoupling of energy demand growth and economic growth. So while we keep seeing economy grow at a, a fairly steady pace, we see energy demand uh, decelerate quite significantly. For the next 15 years, maybe down to a bit less than a percent per year from, from the two to three. And then from the mid 2030s, we even see a flattening or a plateauing of energy demand. So this is quite historically significant, isn't it? This is like an epochal moment. I think it's very significant. And I think there are uh, three or four things driving it. Uh, I think the first of all, the shape of GDP is changing, right? So Krista talked about last 100 years. It was rapid industrialization, first in the Western economies, then China driving early 2000s. I think going forward, we will see services uh, more driving our GDP and economy. So I think the energy that you need for services is inherently different or less than the energy you use for the rapid industrialization. I think that's one. I think second, and we all see it, right? We continue to get more efficient on how we use energies. Uh, we all have double glazed windows, so that our heating is more efficient. Uh, we have appliances that continue to get more efficient. Our car, including our internal combustible engine or electric vehicles, they continue to get more efficient. And that energy efficiency continues to drive uh, down the overall demand for energy. I think another big trend is electrification. Yeah? So not only we get more efficient, everything is getting electrified from road transport to actually uh, people coming into middle class and buying more appliances. I think electricity is something that we think will grow twice the amount uh, where it is today. Um, and that electricity is actually getting powered by renewable sources. All this together leads to a point where, yes, we will continue to grow our GDP. Yes, the living standards will rise but the energy that we will need will not track the same growth rate. We will just need less energy. And at some point in time, I think around 2040, 50s, the energy demand will plateau. Uh, it will actually plateau. Phase. So we think global energy demand will actually sort of reach a peak, if you like. Yeah, by 2040, 2050. Wow, yeah, yeah. 
So, without getting too nerdy on us, just explain a little bit the, the research and what's behind it and what do you mean by the reference case? Behind a lot of the, the, the work we do on the global energy perspective in McKinsey is a, what I, I call a, a, a big energy demand model, where, where we basically model the demand for energy across uh, demand segments, so it could be road transport, it could be industry, etc. We do that across the fuel types, so is it coal, gas, renewable, uh, and we do that globally. So we do it across 50 countries, regions uh, across the world. And all that uh, modeling is done bottom up where we look at the economics. So it's, it's basically economics driven, whether you build a power plant or whether you buy a car, it's driven by economic models on, on every single cell within that demand cube, if, if, if you want. Um, we have not taken into account uh, regulation in addition to, or ex except for the one which is already there. So existing regulation uh, is included with the forecasted uh, trends on, on, on that. But we can't predict exactly. where regulation is going to go in future. So, so what right. we're doing then is to say that from uh, the time when the regulation is then not uh, forecasted anymore, we, we have no regulation, we have no subsidies, we have no incentives. It, it's all based on fundamental economics. Namit, you mentioned electrification and the electrification of, of both industrial and consumer segments as being a big driver here. Again, as a layperson, I'm thinking to myself, you know, why does it matter whether I'm heating my home with electricity or, you know, natural gas? Why does it matter whether I'm fueling my car with electricity, powering my car with electricity or gasoline, I'm still traveling you know, the same number of miles. So is there something inherent about electrification which reduces demand for energy? So I think there is an inherent increased efficiency. Electrical engines are inherently more efficient than combustion engines, absolutely. So that's, that, that, that is true. So that's also a main driver why we see, while the demand for electricity doubles over the next 25, 35 years, uh, the demand for other fuels is practically flat from today until 2050. Yeah. And it's the efficiency, as you say, and it's also this potential cleanness, if, if you want. If you take electricity and, and you make it from clean sources, you also get the lowering of the CO2 emissions, which is another driver yeah. together with efficiency. If you think about how we have been using fuels, we have been burning or combusting them. Now, burning or combustion inherently is an inefficient process. Um, and again, I think it might not be true and you might be able to make it more efficient, but inherently, right, it's different when you're actually generating um, energy through other sources than burning or combusting. So it's the combination of electrification with the rise of renewables. You put those two things together and actually it has quite a big overall impact on how much energy needs to go into the system. So that's a, that's a great segue into to renewables. Just talk a little bit more, Krista, about what's going on, how fast are renewables growing, and, and why. If you look at the past uh, 20 years or so, renewables has grown from practically nothing, maybe 5-6% of the, the, the installed capacity, to, to now close to 50 today. Of new installments is, is renewables. Actually, if you look forward, uh, you, you will see a situation where two-thirds, uh, or even more than that, of the power generated uh, in the world is renewable by 2050. Oh, wow. So I think the interesting thing is this has historically been driven by regulation, but right now and forward-looking, this is driven by economics. So 
for every single country and region we look at, the cheapest source of new power generation capacity is a renewable source. It's either solar or wind, depending a bit on the market. It's even more strong when you look at the 2030, because then, then you'll have the, fact, uh, the situation where it is cheaper to build new renewable generation capacity than it is to use the existing coal or gas-based generation capacity. And that's an obvious turning point. So what we, we used to say is that the, the cost game is, is practically won by renewables. So this is not anymore a discussion on the cost of the technology itself. This is now becoming much more of a system integration discussion. So because renewables are what we call intermittent, uh, it produces power whenever the sun shines or when the wind blows. You actually need to make sure that you have power when you need it. And, and, and that is the whole system integration topic, uh, where batteries or other flexible sources of, of power generation are needed yeah. to complement renewables. I must say, again, it's an eye-opener for me, and maybe I've just not been paying attention, but I think it will be an eye-opener for many people that actually, you know, today, in most countries, most regions of the world, renewables are actually the sensible economic choice if you're building new capacity. Yes. I wasn't even aware of that. And it's been happening very fast. It's, it's no surprise. I mean, the cost decline of renewables the last uh, five to ten years has been amazing. And, and that's the, the reason. So this was not at all the case 10 years ago. Yeah. So just decompose renewables a little bit. What are we talking about and what are the big winners here in terms of technologies? The main growth technologies is solar power and wind power. Uh, and within wind, it's two main segments. It's, it's onshore and offshore wind. Offshore wind is actually the newest and the fastest growing technology. Still uh, a little bit more costly than the others, but, but uh, catching up fast. Part of it is also has been, there's a lot of investment that has gone into it, right? Uh, it started a little bit with the Germans, uh, right? Germany replacing uh, nuclear uh, and putting subsidy on solar. I think that was a big, Christopher, would you agree? It was a big sort of, uh, I think, push for solar, right? The cost really come down because it was getting installed at scale. Uh, and I think wind has been also kind of uh, just getting a lot of investment from a lot of companies. And I think that just leads to stronger learning curves, more uh, more kind of uh, stronger ecosystem uh, or supplied industry, and I think it just drives the overall cost down. Is there a role for hydrogen in all of this? And I ask that question because we're here in Amsterdam, uh, and I got my ride in from the airport in a Tesla, which was interesting, so electric. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my driver about whether he liked his electric car, which he did. Mm -hmm. But he was convinced that the the, fu the future of the, the automotive fuel of the future was hydrogen, and gave me a long uh, explanation as to why. Where does hydrogen stand in, in this? So, so my view is there, there is a big role for hydrogen, but not necessarily in uh, light vehicle uh, road transport. When it comes to that light vehicle passenger cars, uh, the battery technology has already progressed so far. I, I think it's hard to catch up for hydrogen. Over uh, analysis show that around 20, mid-2030s, uh, hydrogen will also be cost competitive. That, that's our, our figures. I think a big discussion is, is, is going to be around how you make that hydrogen. Currently you make it based on natural gas, so steam reforming on natural gas. What we see as renewables grow, you actually get more price volatility on, on the power side. You get more times with, with very low power prices. And then there's another way of making hydrogen, which is based on so-called electrolyzers, where you basically take water molecules and you split it into hydrogen and oxygen, basically using power. 
And, and, and that's, um, that's where I think hydrogen will come into the play big time connected to renewables. You actually already see it in, in some of the recent wind auctions, offshore wind auctions. There is a link where you also add hydrogen to the solution. For me, hydrogen is quite uncertain, right? So it's, uh, again, I think the technology that we're talking about, whether it's renewables or uh, electrification, I think hydrogen is in a different bracket. Uh, I think hydrogen does need to de-risk itself. I think we need to still see a lot of money going into hydrogen. Does mean people are not playing. I would make the distinction between um, the use of hydrogen and where hydrogen is used and how it is produced. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I do believe, I mean, already today, there's a lot of hydrogen being used in fertilizer production, for example. That hydrogen is being made from natural gas. Uh, so the question is then, are there new uses for hydrogen in addition to what we have today? And, and then transport is, is, is the obvious question. And, and, and that is a, a big question and where uh, yeah, the jury is still out. Can I just ask you to recap the big numbers around renewables? Currently, renewables is around 25% of total power generation globally. Renewables being... Power generation is electricity generation. Electricity generation globally. That includes hydro. It's, it, most of that, those 25% is probably hydro. So around 20% touch point is, is hydro. The rest is uh, solar and wind. If you look into 2050, around 75% of the electricity produced will be based on renewable sources. Hydro will remain at roughly 20 percentage points, but then you have more than half being solar and wind. Yeah, so it's a big growth of solar and wind based on what we know today. Uh, and that is on produced power. Uh, if you look at the capacity installed, uh, the, the numbers are even, even bigger. Because you, when, when you have a solar plant, the amount of capacity needed to produce the same amount of power for solar is, is, is higher than for many other uh, sources of, of power generation. And the other important point is if you look at the new installations, we see very few new installations other than wind and solar, right? So there are very few, if any, new gas plants built. So if you look at what's being built today, where are people pouring concrete and actually building plants? It's, it's wind and solar. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> but, Largely. No, no, so, so, no there, there's actually, there are 200 coal plants being built in, in China right now. But, but I, I think the big shift we're seeing, again from the modeling, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the development year by year on our reference case, but what, what we are now seeing as a big shift uh, due to the competitiveness of solar and wind is that we expect a lot less coal built in India than we did before. Uh, so in, in, in the reference case a year, year and a half ago, we actually had almost a doubling of coal-based uh, uh, power generation capacity in India. That, is, that number is now a lot lower in the, in the last reference scenario. And the reason is that solar is getting so competitive that, that you rather build new solar uh, and even add some battery storage than building new coal-based fire generation, power yeah. generation. Yeah, and I think that underlines you know, what a fluid situation is, is to some degree, because the economics are changing, national policies are changing, regulation is changing. So yeah, the reference case but again is, is our best guess, yeah. Yeah. based on some serious modeling, but it's gonna move. Yeah. Yeah. So what does all of this mean for oil? And when will we hit peak oil production? What's our latest thinking? So 
peak oil demand. Yeah? We'll probably have more oil uh, than we need. But I think overall, right, so let's talk about the big sectors in oil, right? Road transport is a big sector for oil. We'll need less oil for road transport, given the EV uh, uprise. Chemicals is also a big growth sector for oil, and chemicals, right, plastics and all this stuff. That segment continues to grow. We will need more oil for chemicals. I think there is an increasing realization, mainly in Middle East, to stop using oil for power generation. Now, it might sound strange, but Middle East was still using a lot of oil for power generation. I think pluses and minuses, overall, we see over the next, in a reference case, over the next 10, 15 years, oil still grows by 10 million barrels a day. And I think for Anchor today, we use around 100 million barrels a day. Yeah? So we get to, over the next 15 years, 10 years, we get 10 to 10% growth for oil. And in our reference case, apparently that's where it peaks. After that, we see decline in overall demand for oil. And that peak comes roughly when? It's around 2033. However, we have to be careful, right? And I think we can talk about s stories here, but I think four years ago, we were putting oil demand peak as a sensitivity in our models. I think- so it was not part of the It reference. was not part of the reference case. I think last, before last year, oil was peaking in 2047. Okay. Now we're saying oil peaks in 2033. And I think if we actually, given this a reference case, and as Christopher said, we talked to all our global experts to understand what's going on. So in some ways we have to build some sort of consensus. We also did an accelerated case. And if you look at a couple of tipping points like the EV uptake in China in 2020, if you look at the policy targets from the government and the OEM targets that are coming out, if you look at the, the regulations on plastics, we could actually see right further decrease in oil demand, especially in road transport, especially in road sector and chemicals, and you actually can see a peak in oil demand over the next decade. Now, what does it mean? In the end, you could also say it means that instead of growing at 1%, we're probably growing at 0% or a bit negative. But you have to understand it's a commodity that declines every year by 3 to 5%. So we will continue to need oil, even if the oil demand peaks. However, it will be a new concept, and we have to see how does the geopolitical or the producer landscape aligns itself to its new reality whenever it becomes uh, very clear. Right. And, and in many ways, you can say that uh, the question of when oil peaks is, is less important than the question of what happens afterwards. And, and in the reference case, you could almost say that oil plateaus. There is a decline rate of 0.5% or something a year until 2050. But it's relatively little compared to the 3 to 5% natural depletion of the, the oil uh, fields. In the accelerated scenario, in, in the sensitivity, we actually see a, a much steeper decline after the peak. So the peak comes earlier, next decade, and the decline is steeper, 2.5% per year. That means that you get a lot closer to the natural depletion rate, and, and probably it will have much bigger impact on the dynamics of the industry uh, than if you have the, the reference scenario. So you mentioned uh, industry dynamics there, and of course a lot of the same companies are, are big in gas that are big in, in oil. So just compare the, the outlook for oil, what's the outlook for gas? So um, I think gas, our analysis shows, is inherently more resilient than oil. Uh, and you can say that there are three main reasons why this is so. Uh, first, gas is replacing in many places a 
more dirty uh, fuel, coal. Uh, and since a big driver of many places of energy transition is, uh, is, is the climate, that is, is, is a positive. The other positive driving the resilience of gas is that even in a system where you have a lot of renewables, so you have the renewable tra tra transition, you need some kind of flexibility in the system, as, as, I, as I talked about, and, and that is naturally provided by natural gas. And this, is, and this is the baseload concept. Yeah, you know, or, you, 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 you've yeah. got your, your renewables, but they tend to be quite volatile in what they're producing and when, yeah. so you still need this baseload and so, gas provides So in that. the evenings in a, in, in a place where, where solar energy is important, you need something else to, yeah, to cover it. Yeah. In the Netherlands, for example. The third reason is that uh, gas is to a large extent used in what we call hard to abate uh, sectors. So. You use a lot of gas in, in industry for medium and high temperature heat. That is one of the sectors that is hardest to uh, abate or to, to, to replace. Mm. What's an way. example of that? So uh, in metals production, it's a typical example where you need uh, high, high temperature heat. So if you're smelting yeah. something... You, you burn the gas to get the, the heat. Uh, and to electrify that is, is quite tricky. So, so that's, that's the reason why inherently uh, gas is more robust than oil demand. Uh, even though also in, for gas we see a peak or a plateauing uh, towards the end of the, the period uh, in, in the latest reference case. Which is 2015? 20, yeah, so, so in the 2040s we see, see gas peaking, or actually in the mid-2030s we see gas peaking, but, but really plateauing, not yeah. declining sharply. There is one big black swan here on gas. Uh, and that is hydrogen, uh, and it's electrolyzer-based hydrogen. Because the alternative for natural gas in many of the hard-to-abate segments or sectors would be to use hydrogen based on electrolyzers. There is a lot of scaling discussions and different discussions around that, but, but that would, for me, be the one black swan. So it's possible that we could get this substitution of hydrogen for gas in some of these industrial applications, and that could change the picture. Yeah, exactly. We could get a substitution of uh, uh, hydrogen for gas in, in some of those. And we can, where we use the hydrogen based on gas, we could get a substitution to hydrogen based on electrolyzers. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about coal? It tends to be the most GHG uh, emitting fuel source. So what is the future of coal in, in all of this? I think Coal is an interesting story, but I think one thing is pretty clear. Coal is going to decline massively uh, for the reasons that you pointed out. But I think in our analysis, we see coal demand going down from 40 to 50 percent from current levels over the coming uh, two to three decades. However, it still remains in the system. Um, and I think, as Krista mentioned before, there are still some coal plants plant to be built in Asia. I think over time as our power systems develop based on renewable technologies, you might see further phasing out of coal. When we say that there's a 40% decline, that, that's almost exclusively driven by China. So many other places it's flat or some places even a slight decline in the coal demand. So China is moving aggressively to phase out coal, but it, because it's such a big part of the energy system in China, that does not happen overnight, that's for sure. Indeed.
And I think that's, that's a big takeaway from, for me from all of this research is despite these very big moves going on on a number of, of areas, I mean, this is an apt metaphor, but it is like turning the super tanker. The global energy system is like a, a super tanker in, in that it's got this momentum. There's a huge amount of sunk capacity and infrastructure and uh, industry structure around it. And that does not change you know, overnight. And you're talking decades, not years, to look at these trends. Indeed. And I think, as again, right, it, it's a complex system. So you also need to be careful because not all fuels are easily replaceable. Um, and I think it has to be, and that's why I think when we talk about what is the implication of some of these things, we do need to take into account that indeed there are some sectors where the growth is, but you will continue to need some other fossil fuels, right, where economic rent can still be made. Right. So let's segue from there in, into greenhouse gas emissions. Based on the modeling that we've got, what are the implications for GHG emissions, and where are we, people tend to use the, the, the Paris scenarios? I think there's the good news and bad news, right? I think the good news with all the stuff we have talked about, the carbon emissions will decline. Uh, I think they'll be 20% lower by 2050 where we are today, and that's in reference case. Uh, however, I think the bad news is that they still remain far away from the two degree pathway laid out in uh, 2016 Paris Agreement. Uh, I think even in our accelerated scenario, uh, we, we don't see ach achieving this two-degree uh, scenario laid out in uh, Paris Agreement. Right. And, and this is all actually one of the challenges we receive on, on the reference case. So uh, it, it goes something like this. So if you believe that climate change is for real, and uh, most people do believe that climate change is for real, does it then make sense to have a reference case that uh, fails to reach the two degree scenario and even more the 1.5 degree scenario to such a big extent? Because the argument being that if, if we're overshooting that pathway, there will be regulatory action. Exactly. And, and, and I, I think the only answer to that is to say that we want to develop the, call it the, the economic, the financially driven uh, reference case. And, and then we are happy and often also do analysis around that and, and ask ourselves, so what would it actually take to get to the two, two degree or to even to get to the 1.5 degree scenario? Yeah. So I know you both work with big oil companies, big utilities. Maybe let's start with oil and gas companies. When you have C-suite conversations, I'm guessing they have digested a lot of this. This is their, their business. What's their response? How are they responding to this? Yeah. Again, I think we should try to answer it, but I think it's good to understand that companies are nuanced. Uh, you have the super big global players, you have smaller regional players, and you have national oil companies. And again, I think the conversation is nuanced across these players, but I think there are two dimensions they look at. I think the first one is we talked about it. The good news for them is we will continue to need oil. Um, if for nothing else, because we decline 3 to 5% every year, to put some numbers, this means that we need to find 43 million barrels per day of oil, new oil, in 2035. So there's still a lot of oil to be found and produced. Of course, as some of this transition takes shape, as some of uh, oil demand goes down, we get a peak in the demand, you need to ensure these barrels are resilient in the price environment that you might get into. 
Um, and I think that's the first question on their current portfolio. We have to find oil, but it needs to be resilient barrels on the cost curve. I think then there's a second dimension to that question where power is a growing segment. In some ways, it's the new business. So why would we not look at it? And I think they can look at it, but I think they also want to be very sharp on their investment thesis. Are the returns the same as my core business? Is the risk the same as my core business? I go down deep in the ocean, drill something worse than setting up a windmill on land. It's a different risk, different return. I think the other thing is the way you look at opportunities is different. Um, it's very local, it's very uh, specific opportunities all across uh, the world. And also you need sort of, um, in some ways, more your downstream commercial marketing capability, especially on the retail side. Uh, and I think some of them are evaluating options on what this business can mean for them. Um, so I think it's, it's at least those two dimensions that at yeah. least my oil and gas clients are thinking yeah. about. And what about utilities? Because this is also a big change for utilities as well, the rise of renewables. You, you mentioned earlier, Krista, the challenge of integrating renewables into the existing power system. So what's the discussion? So. To some extent, it's relatively similar to the, to the oil company. So, so first, you would expect that because of the electrification, uh, it's, it's, it's a positive story because you will have increased demand for power. And, and that is true. So, so there, on the demand side, the story is probably one notch more positive than for, for the oil and gas companies. Uh, however, it's, it's a pretty big shift going from traditional, large, centralized power generation based on coal, gas, hydro, nuclear, towards uh, much more of a renewables like wind, solar type of, of, of generation, higher upfront capex, less opex, often smaller margins. Uh, so it, it's quite a big change uh, also for, uh, for, for the utilities. And you add to that that you, you actually get new competitors coming in, like the oil companies, like the oil majors that are like gigantic companies with, with, with big financial muscles. And you also see more light-footed uh, renewable specialists like uh, solar developers. Uh, so so you, you face a completely new competitive environment where I also see many of the, the traditional utilities trying to find their way and, and, and find a new competitive model uh, for them to survive and prosper. So again, the industry dynamics are changing and that will raise the question again of competencies. Like what, what actually are we Good I think the good thing for utilities is actually pretty simple, right? They need to figure out how to win in their current business, yeah, which is changing, but you know, they don't have the choice like the, the, not, the energy not, other companies. Power is not going at growth, far from it. No, and, and they're not getting into right, oil and gas. So I think in some ways the question is simple. The answer, of course, is very complex given uh, all the complexities that you uh, mentioned. So I think that's all we have time for today. But uh, Krista and Namit, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Simon. It's thank a pleasure. You. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about McKinsey's latest global energy perspective, please visit mckinsey.com or check out the McKinsey Insights app. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.